Okay, ich bin geboren geworden in uh, Bronx Hospital. Uh, man hat Mama am Demut gewohnt in Brooklyn. Und wenn ich bin gewesen sechs Jahre alt, dann ist ich heute gezeugt in Bronx. Und dort bin ich aufgewachsen. Hello, Jews and others who are inscribed in the Book of Life this year. This is Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Happy uh, Days of Awe to you. I'm I'm so awed. And senior writer Leah Leibowitz. Getting the Actually, with my cat, it's always like every day is a day of awe. <laughs> Just kidding. Someone else's cat, not mine. First pun of 5777. Mark, I think this is the year that you pun, that you learn to pun and do it. You know, it's my dad's thing. It's it's the thing. I, I feel I'm not old enough. I haven't grown into that point where my humor is entirely composed of references to old movies and to puns. I'm not ready to be that guy yet. So you're saying that I'm like particularly precocious doing it now? I I am. Well, I, you know, there are people who are just natural punters and then there are old men for whom that's the only humor that they have access to. That there are two kinds of punters. You just have the gift. Like you just, you probably were eight Somewhere years old. Somewhere my friend Mel Brooks is shaking his fist at you. He's like, you're, don't talk to me about dad jokes. <laughs> Our guests uh, today are Gittel Schachter Viswanath, co-editor of the astonishing new comprehensive English Yiddish dictionary, which is the first Yiddish dictionary to figure out how would you say email or transgender in Yiddish. It's also a name we completely made up because there's no way there's a person with that name. N- named Gittel Schachter Viswanath? Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying. Yeah, well, a, a we're random gonna, Yiddish name generator. We're going to ask her. We'll we're believe ask it her. when she's here yeah. in the studio. We'll believe it when she's actually in the flesh um, and, or in die Fleisch. Uh, and uh, Tessa Kaimis Kim is our Gentile of the Week. She is a playwright and solo performer of the show The Bad German. And she is a she's a serious uh, she's a serious shiksa. Um, and by the way, I've, I we've never talked about how some people find the term chiksa offensive, but we, with Tessa, we are using it so affectionately. And and she, I think, would be the first to own it, to claim it. I think you should actually do like, you know how you did the Jewess roundtable on Tablet Mark? Yeah. You should do the shiksa, shiksa roundtable. We could do that. We'd have to, yeah, we could get a bunch of, of shiksa ot. Shiksa ot. <laughs> a bunch of shiksa ot to ask. I think there's definitely question. people who have like taken back that word. Non-Jewish women married it. to Jewish men who like, isn't there like some blog that's like Shiksa in the kitchen? I'm, I'm sure. And who wrote, I feel like there's something in pop culture called Shiksa Goddess. It was a blog. It was, a, I don't know. Anyway, uh, Stephanie, how was your Rosh Hashanah? It was good. I did double duty Cohen Butnick, which is like, you know, it's great. We went to the Cohens in New Jersey the first night and then my parents picked us up the second night and drove us further into New Jersey to my aunt and uncle's lake house. Was there any shul going at all or was it just dinners? Oh, wow. This is, I, I guess, no, I don't, I don't, I don't go because actually I don't know that I want to talk about this. Of course you do. This is unorthodox. So basically the weird thing about working at Tablet is that you've been like dealing with the holidays for a month in the lead up to the holidays. So by the time the Rosh office. Hashanah comes around, I'm just like, like I, I don't I'm need done. Like I've actually <laughs> been doing this for a really long time. And... So, so Rosh Hashanah is entirely stream. about family dinners. You've it's entirely in, in family dinners. <laughs> to me, it's July. just like, you're, you're good. yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, li- I like to live stream services um, and check out different. <laughs> no, no, I love Central Synagogue. Um, I love the rabbi there. She, I mean, uh-huh. I just like to, I, I like to like, you know, d- dip into different things. What a millennial. You've periscoped. Yeah. I'm the high <laughs> holidays. Love it. And, Le- and Liel, new. Like, you know, I, I, I basically grew up in the wild, so I'm, I'm not accustomed to this whole family thing yet. It's, it's still new <laughs> to me. He's still pretty feral. My, my life is, yeah, it's like the scene in Tarzan, you know, when they just get him out and like in a suit and he's like sitting there and itching because he's like not a monkey. 
Um, so I overcompensate by making really weird food, but this this year was was good. Uh, I made a spicy pepper paste and raspberry sorbet, and oh, that sounds amazing. Really, yeah, no, it was. It was Do your children appreciate it? My children could not care less. They're like ice. My children, I want ice just, cream. Exactly. They get to the point where there's ice cream, and then it's like this is the best dinner ever. That's their sweetness. Yep. Before I ask you about Rosh Hashanah, like, how is JJ? Thank you for asking. JJ's belly is quite swollen. Is JJ fluid, written in the Book of Life? Mark? JJ in pencil. God willing, I, I I don't see JJ making it to fifty seven seventy eight. Um, but JJ still gets up to bark at people walking by the house with dogs. JJ still she's eating a little less. She only finished half her food the other day. It's not it's not good, but she seems to still have a lot of happiness and spirit. So, thank you thank you for asking. Thank you for asking. Um, my restaurant was good. We were invited to to Stephen Leslie's for dinner one night, and and. The Abrahams were there, and uh, the Greenbergs were there. You know, it was it was fun. You and know, I think then, if uh, we, we were together for Rosh Hashanah, Mark, I don't think the dinner would ever end. I think we would still be sitting at the table <laughs> today, like a week and a half later. And I'd yeah, be like, well, guys, we'll, yeah. shut up. Yeah, just like we'll find we'll find out when you inv- we'll find out when you invite me someday. Yeah, someday. I've still never been to the double apartment on the Upper West Side, so no. Here's what I want for fifty seven seventy seven. I want an invitation to your apartment. And I want an invitation to Stephanie's wedding. And I don't know that either of them is forthcoming, but I've put it, I've, I've put it out there. I've, I've put out there what I want. Mom, are you uh, listening? Yeah. Mark, those, okay. mark them you, down. Are you, are you there, Mrs. Butnick? It's me, Elise, Mark. Elise and Howard, that's what I, need. That's what I want. Do that's you want what I chicken need. or fish? I, I want the vegetarian. Oh, I want the yeah. mushroom or the eggplant. Oh, see, right? that's why you're not getting the invite. All right. Uh, the year 5777 has begun, and a little news of the Jews. First of all, the year's begun. That's the news. We had Rosh Hashanah. Uh, other news uh, from Iran, which makes it into the news of the Jews because they are such experts on Judaism and the Holocaust and the Zionist conspiracy. They are hosting the World Women's Chess Championship in February, and they are requiring that all the women who come wear uh, hijabs, wear, wear headscarves. Uh, the U.S. women's champion, who is a Georgian-American named Nazi Bakitsa, says she's not going unless they let her hair uh, fly free. So I have a couple things to say about this. First of all, you may not know this about me, but I used to play some serious tournament chess we're back so in the 1980s. We're not surprised. I mean, what a shocker. Not really? Nazi really. that coming. You know, my rating, for those of you who know this stuff, got up into the 1600s, which for a 13-year-old was like, you know, not what bad. What about your SATs? And anyway, I, we're not going to go there. But um, but I just want to say, first of all, that, that there is no world more male than chess, like really? physics has physics has really? more women. Sci-fi conventions have more really? women. So the, the Fi- queen yeah. was basically the only woman you guys touched until a basically. very late age. <laughs> basically, yeah. so first of all, we need more women in chess, and um, uh, and you know how we you, get them? The Ar- <laughs> you bring them to Iran. So the Iranians are not helping matters. And the second thing I want to say is I am so with her. And there's a lot of people who I think don't give a damn about chess who are really, really with her. I think this is, I think. Everyone should be boycotting this. Stephanie, are you with me there? Inshallah. I just think it's like making it harder for people to play chess. Like it just seems like such a low-hanging fruit. Like don't we want to be like, everyone play chess now. It's so cool. And it's like, but no, you're going to have to go to Iran. You're going to have to put a hijab on. And I don't know. It just seems like yeah, it seems like they're like messing with them. It's not good for it's not good for the game. The cover story of Time Magazine this week is about, in part, about the White Helmets, a amazingly altruistic civil defense and search and rescue team in Syria. They basically search through bombed buildings looking for survivors. I mean, great, great stuff. But the article made what I take to be a major whopper. It said, and I quote, the White Helmets credo is a quotation from the Quran, quote, whoever saves one life saves all of humanity, unquote. Everybody right. knows Emma Watson said that. <laughs> right. so, I think that was actually Daniel Radcliffe. Are you kidding me? 
So of course Rupert we Grin. Jews, we Jews out there in the Jewosphere, we're like, wait a second, that's actually from the Talmud, and it's really widely quoted. Like it's in Schindler's List for crying out loud. That's how all I mean, Jews that's, know it. That's the text that we really refer to now. Like after the Hillel quote that that people think is from Emma Watson, if I'm not for myself, or no, if not now, when right? That pretty much number two in pop culture schmaltz Jewish quotes is whoever saves one life, it's as if they save the whole world, or it's as if they save humanity. I always thought it was Taylor Swift who said that. So, so when we saw that it was apparently, according to Time magazine from the Quran, um, that seemed like a bit of a that seemed like a cultural appropriation, shall we say? Um, but and is so it I actually in the Quran? So, so there is a version of it. It's quite similar and depends on the translation. But basically, yes, it is in the Quran. Masechet Sanhedrin, bitches. Right. Mishnah, motherfuckers. From the Mishnah and then the Talmud, right? So I was tweeting back and forth with my man, Jared Malzin, who wrote the article. And I was like, you know, it's from the Talmud first. And he was like, right. But the people in the white helmets, they, they are taking it from the Quran, right? They are principally Muslim, Syrian Muslims who are taken from the Quran. And I'm like, right, but when you write that it's from the Quran, people think it originated in the Quran, right? Like Abraham and Isaac are in the Quran too, but you don't say they're characters in the Quran. They're actually characters in Torah who then had an, an afterlife in other religions. So am I crazy here? I mean, shouldn't they, shouldn't the writer have somehow tipped off that it didn't, that they're not quoting the Quran, they're quoting something that's much older than that, that the Quran also has? Or am I being precious? Uh, could you be both? Because you're both precious and right, which, you know, is part of your charm. Well, the problem is, okay. is like, this is how people are learning about things like the Quran is by reading an article about something in current news and that like references the Quran. Like we're, they're not, we're not a particularly curious society right now. So I agree with you that if there isn't a, like a, just a half a sentence more to, to like maybe educate people a tiny bit more, just do it. Just throw it in. But that would require providing context, Stephanie. And really, why start now? What's context? Well, you can only <laughs> yeah. imagine. You can only imagine the the the, the backflips and somersaults the writer's going through because he might have known it was originally Talmud, but then he's like, "But if I put it in there, then writers who are more loyal to the Quran, shall we say, would complain? Well, no, these guys are taking it from from the Quran, and you Jew you Jewed it up. Well, this and, is why I, I don't just, write anything for the internet anymore. <laughs> this is I've why you don't have given up. Work for a magazine that has a website, right? And a print publication that every listener, can we can we take a break and say it here, should yeah. subscribe to right now. If you love Unorthodox, you absolutely have to subscribe to Tablet's print magazine, which is amazing. It's really easy. Yep. You can just text Tablet to 66866. We have a really good um, Hanukkah issue coming out, I will say. Um, all right. A bunch of deaths in Judaism, right? The anonymity of Elena Ferrante died, author of the four so-called Neapolitan novels. Starting with my you, Elena Ferrante, by the way. Starting with my brilliant friend, uh, her novel 2012. Um, according to reporter Claudio Gatti, writing in the New York Review last week, and I quote, after a months-long investigation, it is now possible to make a powerful case for Ferrante's true identity. Far from the daughter of a Neapolitan seamstress described in Frantumalia, new revelations from real estate and financial records point to Anita Raja, a Rome-based translator whose German-born mother fled the Holocaust and later married a Neapolitan magistrate. Okay, end quote. Now, how did he figure out her real identity? This is amazing. Because she went on a spending spree. According to Gotti, Public real estate records show that in 2000, after Ferrante's first book was turned into a successful movie in Italy, Raja acquired in her own name a seven-room apartment near Villa Torlonia, an expensive area in Rome. The following year, she bought a country home in Tuscany. So basically, she it was all about the bling. Like she could not sit on the money long enough. It's like in Ocean's Eleven where like the, the number one rule after a heist is you don't go buying – the Ferrari, because but, then people and, know, and writing you know, a book is now akin to robbing a <laughs> casino. 
mean, the, the best f- thing about this story is that the rest of the internet was like, she was violated. Was she violated? Is she Does she have a right to her privacy and anonymity? Why isn't she who we thought she was? And like the Jewish internet was kind of just like, she's Jewish. We got her. Like, <laughs> she's <laughs> ours. Does this mean that when, when our crazy great aunts send us that email about all the Jewish Nobel Prize, we're like, look, we got X number of the Jewish of the Nobel Prizes here. Are they all are they also gonna say and, and we got hear? a and did you I hope hear? she wins the, the, the Nobel in literature this year? That'd be really She can't win it. Why? No, the, one of my thoughts, and this is very dark, like you know I I'm not someone who sees anti Semitism around every corner, but now that she's a Jewish appropriator of peasant Italian culture. She can't win the Nobel. The Italians would be mad because they think she's not an authentic Neapolitan peasant child. And 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 it's very hard for a Jew to get a Nobel in literature. And the Swedes would say, until the occupation ends, we will not give this Jew any award. That's exactly right. And you know, like, you know that I'm a far lefty crazy Nick, but compared to me, most people are. But the far lefties will not let a Jew get a Nobel Prize in liter- in literature or peace unless they know where they stand on Israel-Palestine. And the fact that she's just a writer who writes acclaimed novels won't – this is, actually writes her out of that kind of prize how and, and every other prize. until someone asks her like what she feels – how she feels about Israel? Like when when's oh, that blogger going to get yeah. to like, her? By the time the show goes up on Thursday. Miss like, Ferrante, we're sorry. Yeah. Uh, also in the, Isra- the, the Jewish death march. Uh, the Jewish death march is – the, it's popular. Like it's catchy. Yeah, it's a catchy. It has a nice ring I wonder, to it. Right. Where did we get that one? Uh, Carnegie Deli is apparently closing December 31st. So if you want your overstuffed corned beef sandwich, you got to go by December 31st. There are efforts underway to save it, but they may go the way of Shimon Perez, who died last week. I, I'm so uh, sorry. I apologize to the Perez family. I feel very guilty. Why is that, Leo? I think I may have uh, killed Shimon Perez. <laughs> you mean when you said at yep. our live show in New Haven he was going to live forever and I did. four days later he was and dead? three days later <laughs> he was no longer alive. Yep. That's oh, why yeah. you should uh, talk talk less sometimes. Talk less. But here's um, the amazing thing about who else? Who else can we kill by so, promising eternal life? Can we, can we get rid of BB that way? <laughs> like just how, promise he'll live wow, forever. Wow, I think like, you. You, there might be how like agents you. coming to your door right now. Yeah. I know. The Secret Service is going to be after me. Did you see yeah, how but, many but people that, he had when he went to the bathroom I'm, during uh, the UN? Yeah. 20. That's how many people are listening to this right now. On that note, yep. uh, Mahmoud Abbas ad Um <laughs> The most amazing thing about Shimon Peres' funeral is that all Israelis talked about uh, all Israelis still talk about it. this is like a week later now, right? Is who did and didn't show up for the funeral? It's basically like all state protocol was run by my mother. It's like, <laughs> did you see how that nice man, Holocaust denier Abbas, came to the funeral? Wasn't that nice of him? And could you believe that Ehud Barak didn't even bother coming back from New York? It was all that. It's all that for a week. Didn't some part of you think that Trump and, and Hillary were going to just stop everything? And go, I mean, oh if God. one of them had gone to the funeral, bam, there's an extra 1% of the Jewish vote. I mean, it's all from Boca, but there's 1% Jesus right there. Christ. The thing that right. I like most is that Prince Charles arrived uh, and he was wearing this amazing uh, like blue velvet yarmulke <laughs> with the royal crest on it. So here's the thing. If you slam the royal crest on fucking everything, it's basically like writing your name on your underwear in camp. Like, who, who's Yamaka? Is it? Oh, it it has the crest. It's Charlie's yep. Yamaka. Like, it's <laughs> Charlie, so Charlie, why'd you forget your Yamaka yeah. again? 
It, it is also amazing. degrades it a little bit. It's yeah. like the Under Armour. It's like, on, you know, Under Armour yeah. or Royal Crest. I love the idea that there was like a conversation like we should, you know what? We should put the crest on those, those, Jew, those funny Jewish hats. <laughs> and if you ever need to wear them, you'll have the crest on it. Because it's like the least Jewish thing, I feel like. I mean, you see sometimes like the right. New York Mets yarmulkes, but it's like, it's like so right. it's velvet. It's like Philip. For no reason. Philip, might you make me a velvet yarmulke yeah, with a royal it's crest? Like, just wear a freaking like black one they give out at shul. Like. <laughs> and then here's my question. Is there a basket of them at the entrance to, to Buckingham Palace now? Like for when the Jews <laughs> Only when they do, they do like little... services. <laughs> Jewish services. <laughs> All right. Upcoming live shows, October 27th. It is upon us. We will be at Hebrew College in Boston. And uh, we, not just we, but but you, you Bostonians, you New Englanders, come down from New Hampshire. Take a break in your door knocking for Trump and Hillary. Come down, spend the evening with us. Um, and the last time I will say it, you know where I'll be October 16th through 18th. Canuga. Canuga in North Carolina at the Lansing League Conference at the Canuga Conference Center, or as the kids call it, Canoogs. I want to send a couple shout outs. Um, I feel I've not been shouting out enough. Uh, first of all, I don't think it's been said enough that our Jubador, who was with us in New Haven, Jim Nabel, has this amazing website, jimnabel.com. It's Nabel with a K, jimcanabel.com. He's a great playwright. He's a great singer. He's one of these super multi-talented guys. He actually wrote the Elena Ferrante novels. It's not Anita Raja. It's Jim Nabel. But I want you to go to his website and learn more about him. I also want to say, we say it in the credits every week, but it's worth saying that our music, our theme music is from the band Golem. Um, they perform all around New York City and the country and the world. I once saw them perform at the wedding of my friend Aaron Matz and Elaine Blair. I couldn't believe they got them to do a wedding because they're not a wedding band. They're like a serious alt-punk rock klezmer type of band but they were um it was really one of the great musical experiences of my wedding going life uh, at least um but you should check out golem and, and they too have a website and finally i want to say that i screwed up last week on the yom kippur apology episode i described rabbi sarah luria's organization as mikvah nyc but her organization which is a community mikvah is called immerse NYC, and it's a pluralistic Jewish feminist organization in New York that provides a framework for life transition. So it could be a wedding, it could be um, recovery from something, it could be a birth, anything where you think you might want to immerse in the mikvah, um, they use the mikvah to model the Jewish world uh, that they want to live in. This is this is the way Rabbi Sarah puts it. She says, it's a diverse community where Jews support one another through life transitions uh, with love. Uh, they have educational programs, peer communities, um, and just really will create for you what you want. So I, I want to offer this free shout out to them, not just because I got the name wrong last week, but because I think they're doing important work. And their website is ImmerseNYC.org. Our Jew of the Week is Gitel Schachter Vishwanath, co-editor with Paul Glasser of the new 826-page comprehensive English Yiddish dictionary, which is it's basically the first new Yiddish dictionary in like since the Nixon administration. Is is that about right? Gittel, since like, nineteen a, since nineteen sixty eight, Uriel Weinreich's uh, actually, dictionary. So I well he came okay so I missed it since the end of the Johnson years. She's basically the first lexicographer to wonder or at least to put between covers. How do you say email in Yiddish or what about transgender or how do we bring Yiddish into 2016? Um, Gittel, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. How do you say How do you say email in Yiddish? <laughs> Well, depends if you're talking about the actual email letter or the email system. So the system is blitzpost, meaning like lightning mail. But the actual email <laughs> letter is a blitzbrief. Blitzbrief. So it's basically like a bintel brief, but like for well, brief the is 21st the word, century. Letter, right, right. 
Do you know what a mental brief I means? I do. Yeah. What does it mean? We're professional Jews here. It's a little, it's a little letter, right? <laughs> no, it actually means a pack of letters. A pack of letters. Yes. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, like a bindle. Is that an English word? Yes, bindle? it is. Okay. It, it is in is New Haven, Connecticut. <laughs> is it, no, isn't the bindle what a hobo puts at the end of a stick, the little pouch of clothes? Uh, isn't that Hobo is actually not the preferred term anymore. Hobos, what yeah. are we saying now? Uh, Wandering person? Residentially challenged American <laughs> residentially is the correct term. <laughs> All right, so, word. you know, like before we get into the Yiddish language, which is more interesting than all of us put put together, um, could you tell us a little bit how you so how did you learn your Yiddish and and you know how did how did this become your career and your life? Okay, so my father was Mordechai Schachter. He was a Yiddish professor at Columbia, um, and he was a linguist, philologist, dialectologist, and um, he was sometimes referred to as Mister Yiddish in his when when he was still around. Uh, he was not only an academic, he was a very, very devoted, principled Yiddishist. Uh, not Yiddishist in the mold of totally secular, anti-religious, uh, but he was actually traditionally oriented. But for him, it was absolutely critical to keep Yiddish alive. It's the language of Eastern European Jewry, and if the language dies, much of the culture in the original language would, would go with that. So he was looking for a Yiddish-speaking woman to marry. He met my mother, Charna, and they got married. And they uh, said this was about, before J date. Like, how do you how do you find a Yiddish-speaking woman? How, do you put a, an ad in the in the Forverts or? Well, it's actually an interesting story. Do you want to take a detour? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Definitely. So they actually met on a double date. Uh, this was in the 1950s. My father was a relatively new immigrant after the war. Uh, he came from Romania. And uh, they went out on a double date. So actually, my mother was interested in the other guy, not, not the um, academic-looking one that was sitting next to her in the back seat of the car. Uh, so P.S., they ended up dating. And uh, after a few months, you know, in the 1950s, it didn't take too long. So they're sitting on a park bench, and my mother goes, new? And my father goes, new, new. And that's how they knew they were engaged. And that is absolutely the truth. That's a true story. You're not going to believe this. That's actually how my wife and I got engaged. Similar story, right? (laughs) Yeah, Ben texted me new. (laughs) And then you Snapchatted back new, new, and that was the end of that. That was the beginning. Um, All right, so then they have they have uh, ah. a, a Yiddish home, and and how much did they? They didn't raise you speak. It wasn't your first language, was it? It was absolutely my first language. There was only Yiddish spoken in the home. They spoke it to each other, and they spoke it to their four children, of which I am the second oldest. And not only did we only speak Yiddish, we were not allowed to speak English. It was really very principled and very disciplined. Also, it was an unusual community. Uh, They lived on Bainbridge Avenue in the Bronx, which we called the Bainbridgevka in the mold of Kasrilovka or other, you know, Anatevka. It was our little shtetl in the Bronx. And there were three main families that lived on this block, Yiddish-speaking families. There were the Fishmans, that's Joshua and Gala Fishman. Joshua Fishman was a well-known sociolinguist. Uh, and there was the Schechter family. And then there were the Gottesmans, who, uh, Bela Gottesman was my father's sister. She's a famous Yiddish poet. So, it, uh, you know, it's, it was a very unusual combination of families. It was an intellectual crowd. It was an academic group. And 
all three families raised their children speaking Yiddish. Uh, and there was a Shalom Aleichem Shul uh, Yiddish school across the street, which we attended after coming home from public school. Um, it was an unusual upbringing. So, so here's my question about public school. Like, At what point do you realize that the world is not what this little avenue in the Bronx where these three families are? Like, what's your first real culture shock when encountering, you know, America? Hmm. I don't remember. Uh, they did send us to Camp Hemshach for many, many summers. It was a, a Bundist summer camp, a Jewish labor bund. And they sent us there not because my parents were socialists or Bundists, but because it was uh, one of the Yiddish, Yiddish culture camps and the one that was most linguistically Yiddish. They still spoke Yiddish. Announcements were made in Yiddish. And that's where I made some of my earliest friends many of whom were children of Holocaust survivors who, who knew Yiddish, spoke Yiddish, weren't interested necessarily in speaking it. For them, it was an immigrant language. For me, I think that's when I realized that it was different for me because I was American-born, my mother's American-born, and we spoke Yiddish out of principle, not because our parents could barely manage the English language. So for us, it was a language of, of respect, of prestige, uh, and, and something to be, um, you know, to maintain rather than just sort of, you know, use as a secondary thing if you didn't have anything else. So, yeah, I think I realized that in Camp Hemshach. But we went to public school and we had friends. I always felt different. How so? Well, if our friends came into the house, um, the language would not ordinarily revert to English. We would continue speaking Yiddish. And our friends would be sitting at our table and everybody would be speaking Yiddish and then somebody would translate for the friend. I mean, that, that's one example. And many, many years later, and it worked, I thought, many, many years later, a friend who I've made friends, remained friends with for decades told me, you know, it was a little rude that, that, no, <laughs> that nobody spoke to me in English. And I said, but that was the culture that I grew up in. And that is how, uh, yes, it had its, its drawbacks, but that is how my parents managed to raise four children who continue to speak Yiddish with their children. And all of us are involved in one way or another, not necessarily with Parnassa, um, but one way or another, we're all involved in the Yiddish world. Yeah, but but not, not to uh, cast any aspersions on your siblings, but only one of you is the co-editor of the quintessential dictionary. That is true. For, for the comprehensive English-Yiddish dictionary. Mean, that's my question for you, because you come from Yiddish royalty. I mean, outside of the Haredi world, which we can you know get to later, your family is really the family that has kept Yiddish alive and, and has become so prominent. Did you feel like you were going to, like you always sort of had to go into Yiddish, or was it just something you wanted to do? How did, how did we get here? Um, I personally along the way made a decision that I wanted to take a career route that was different from Yiddish. And I, I'm, I'm quite aware that it had to do with that, those kinds of psychological things of, of, of cutting my own path. So I actually went to nursing school. Um, I'm a nurse and I work in nursing home consulting today. I've done that for decades. My work on the dictionary, um, I never took a penny for it uh, because fortunately I have Parnassa. Uh, for me, it was a love of the heart. It was wanting to finish this life work that my father wasn't able to finish. And it was the biggest gift I could give to my children and to anyone else who wants to learn Yiddish. So what's the most important stuff in this new book? What did you, how does it, I mean, I actually have some old Yiddish English um, lexicons on, on my, you know, bookshelves, but they're not, you know, they're 50, 60 years old. They're not going to do it for me if I wanted to undertake the study of Yiddish as a contemporary language. So tell me about how you updated this. What's new in this? 
Well, I wouldn't say this is updated. This is this was an entire. This is not a previous dictionary that was expanded. This is a, a brand new um, eighty-three thousand group of words, um, and it came out of my father's research. My father worked um, in the late fifties and in the sixties on a project called the Language and Culture Atlas of Ashkenazic Jewry. He was a an interviewer, and he would travel all over New York with this huge. Um, tape recorder, and he would go to Yiddish-speaking people, most of them from Eastern Europe, and interview them. How do you say this? How do you say that? They came from a certain part of East of Poland. They came from a certain region. He was of the Ukraine. Alan Lomax of, of Yiddish speaking. Yeah, possibly. But, yeah, he collected words, and he heard words he'd never heard before. If he interviewed a tailor, he would get the entire terminology, the whole jargon of the tailor world and put it down on a three-by-five card, one card each for, for every word. If he was interviewing a somebody who was a wrestler in Eastern Europe, he would write down all the wrestling terminology. And my father, over the course of decades, compiled dozens and dozens of different terminologies. There was a military terminology, sport and leisure terminology, um, love and romance terminology, and then all the professions, chemistry, medical, space... Whatever you can imagine, he collected. Give, give us a few nuggets, you know, things that you came across from, from these, you know, particular worlds, from wrestling, you know, that you came across a term that just delighted you so much and stuck with you. Well, I'm not too keen on wrestling, but I was, well, I, was just, I was just thrilled to know that there were words for, you know, welterweight and heavyweight and lightweight. And, um, <laughs> welterweight I, does sound like a little Yiddish. But I don't think it's welterweight in Yiddish. I'd have to look it up. Um, no, but even from other uh, realms, you know, just a word that surprised you, delighted you? Okay. Well, I was actually a swimmer in college. I swam on my team. And I was thrilled to know that there were names for all of the strokes. And swimming freestyle in Yiddish is called Legen Klafter. Uh, this was not something that modern Yiddishists invented. It exists in the literature. And for me, it was exciting for me to be able to talk about what I love to do in Yiddish, um, whereas hmm. other people would just say, you know, Schwim freestyle or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so that's just one example. But the, the freedom to be able to express yourself without having to use an English word uh, or several English words in a sentence, it for me, it's a real sense of, of freedom and and a reality that Yiddish, of course, is a real language. But when, you, when you're really fluent in a language, there's a certain... Right. freedom of being able yet, to express yourself. Every few years, and, and this must infuriate you, uh, you know, more than infuriates me, you would see this kind of, you know, Joe Berger piece in the Times saying, Yiddish is dying. It, what, how, what do you make of that? W why, why are we so keen on killing Yiddish off continuously? Well, I actually think um, Basheva Singer uh, made reference to that in his acceptance of the Nobel Peace Prize um, about, uh, I don't remember his, his words, but it was something about how, you know, um, you know, people have been foretelling the death of Yiddish for a long time. So the fact of the matter is, the structured Yiddish-speaking community of Eastern Europe is, no longer exists. So we have the Hasidic world, which is a structured world. There is not that much contact between the Haredi or Hasidic world and the secular world. And most of the people who are taking Yiddish courses are, I don't want to call them secular, but non-Hasidic, non-Haredi. So they include Orthodox, non-Orthodox, all across the spectrum, all types of Jews and non-Jews who are learning Yiddish. 
So if you're if you want to ask me what kind of numbers are there in terms of you know whether Yiddish is dying and you know how many speakers we have, the only real information we have is based on the census. And um, there's there was a census in 2000 and 2010. So in America in 2010 there were more than 154,000 Yiddish speakers. But encountering modernity and its very particular terms, I imagine there there were some hardships for you, right? What, what, what were some of the really difficult conceptual, you know, up-to-the-minute terms? Maybe email was not one of them, but kind of ideas that we express now that, that you really had to struggle with to find a good Yiddish word for. Oh, there were hundreds. Give us an example. Binge-watching. So, <laughs> so, so it's a relatively new term. And the question was, so, you know, how do we say something like that? Is it important to have a word like that? You know, will, will that word exist past, you know, the year 2016? We, we don't know that. But at the time we were writing this dictionary over the last few years, it was a popular word and we wanted to include it. So uh, we have the Yiddish word schlingen, which means to swallow. Um, a person who schlinked bicher is like a bookworm, somebody who, who swallows books, so to speak, um, who wolfs down books. Um, and so we, we talked about how we could maybe use that. And in the end, we came up with schlingen episoden, meaning to, <laughs> to, to wolf down episodes of that's a particular. Amazing. And that's, that's just one example. But there were hundreds of words. Is it bad that the word I'm so curious about is like sexting? Which is both bad. cultural and technological. Oh, it's in. Oh, she's opening the book. To, to, to our to our <laughs> listeners, she's opening the book. I not safe I for actually, work. Actually, I don't remember that word. It might have become more popular after we finished the. Uh, no wait, we can make it up. Stoppen is actual real Yiddish, right? It's not Americanism, right? To stop. Stoppen texting. Okay, we actually we actually have a word for sexting. So. Um, Regarding your question about stuppen, stuppen in Yiddish just means to push. So uh, that is, uh, I would imagine, an American... Got it. English, an accurate description English. of a uh, uh, romantic right. life everywhere across the screen. Everywhere. Honestly, we have many more beautiful words for romance and sex in Yiddish than stuppen, but that's beside the point. So sext, uh, we have it. It is based on the word that we have for text, of course, um, and texting, a, a text message is a textal, and sending a text mes message is either textlin or schicken a textal, sending a text. So what do you think sexting is? Sextal? Sextlin. Sextlin. <laughs> That's right. That's so good. That's so much better than sexting. And, now, and so we, 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 we did try to, words that needed to be created, we, we tried to give them a Yiddish flavor with the structure of a Yiddish word or Yiddish grammar, and also based on previously existing words, either in Yiddish or in other languages. I feel like Basheva Singer would like that, like this, this, this way in which you've adapted these words, or not adapted, you've just found new invented. words, invented yeah. ways to articulate what, what we do now in our culture, I think is actually very much the fabric of Yiddish. Right. And I would just say that I, I was relatively new to this. The entire space world, the scientific world, the computer world, words were being made, were, were being created for for decades before I came along the scene. Um, so we're just continuing along in the tradition. And my father was also involved in creating some of these words. Who cares about science? We have sexting and binge watching. We're set. <laughs> set for life. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so we will... We <laughs> 
we're going to go binge read uh, your dictionary. Thank the, you. Uh, <laughs> the comprehensive um, uh, English Yiddish dictionary, eight hundred twenty-six pages. Yes. And can you I know, tell you? Is, can you? T- can I tell you where it can be purchased? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. If, yeah. you go, if you go to the website of the League for Yiddish, yeah, uh, you'll find it there. LeagueforYiddish.org. One word. Everyone, do that right now. Drop I feel everything. like League right for now. Yiddish is also like. The superheroes, the Justice League, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's totally Superman. All right, Gittel Shachter Vishwanath, thank you so much for coming in and being our Jew of the week. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Guys, very quickly, we always get questions. How do I get your newsletter? How do I get your newsletter? Stephanie writes the newsletter. It's a great read. Even if you didn't like your show, you'd want the newsletter. So just email us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com and we can sign you up for the newsletter. Also, you should be subscribing to this podcast. Don't make it a one-time thing. Go to iTunes. Get your friends to go to iTunes. Just sign up. Have it regularly delivered. Our Gentile of the Week is Tessa Kymus Kim, although now, Tessa, it's just Tessa Kim, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Keeping because it simple. You de- keeping it simple. When you married Korean, you took the German out of the middle. That's right. Just, just Tessa Kim. Tessa is an actor in New York who has written the play The Bad German about coming to America and dealing with the guilt of being German. First of all, Tessa, wie geht es dir? Sehr gut. Wow, that's ah, really good. Sehr- yeah, danke. Uh, you know, I did some time. I, we have to know our enemies, right? We have to know Absolutely. the people. <laughs> have to, uh, I did a lot, a lot of years with um, with die Muttersprache. Um, and so, um, how are you? And and tell us what's the show about? It's about the guilt of being German, but you know that's a that's a broad topic. It is very broad. No, it's basically a coming to America story. Well, and kind of dropping out of medical school and making my parents really happy with that. Yeah, actually, my dad sent me off saying, you'll never make it in Hollywood. It's all run by Jews, and they'll never let a German in. So I went to New York. Did he really say that? <laughs> yes. Did he really? Oh, he did, yeah. And was he wasn't kidding. He wasn't like No, he seemed Mel like Gibson. a concerned like, parent. He was just like, you know, um, you want to make it an acting. I love that. <laughs> let me just tell you. Yeah. I mean, he just... <laughs> Was and looking out for his from, daughter. You're from Berlin, Frankfurt. Where are you I'm from? I'm from Cologne, the least serious from, city in Germany. So there you are in Köln, and your father, who's like doesn't know Hollywood Jews, but he knows the stereotype. That's brilliant. Exactly. It's like, it's a, oh my! But God. it wasn't like they're evil. Don't work for them. It's like I'm worried that you won't be able to get a job. Exactly. Just, yeah. They no, just it wouldn't it, like you. It's impractical. Because, no, and you know. it, at the time, honestly, it made complete sense to me because why would I? 
hire me if my ancestors had massacred all my um, you know, relatives. Yeah, right. Which le- which Can which I forgets the say, logic that the Jews would hire no, you if you'd make just, money for them. Right, but that that kind of you know <laughs> to me that really that lacks imagination because you know most of the porn that Israelis are obsessed with at some point or another when <laughs> no they're like way. twelve to it's Nazi 15 domination porn has right to do with uh, yeah people who look a lot like you. I'm sorry to say it, uh, but that explains a lot because I worked for many years as a personal trainer and I had a lot of um, Jewish Wall house. Street clients and you know I still had a thicker German accent back then. But whenever at the end of the session I had them on the stretching tables, at the end oh. they would always be like. You know, you would make a good dominatrix. And I was like, and it was several guys that. I mean, Every studio executive in Hollywood, you just had to walk in and be like, you will give me the roles that I want. And uh, they would said yes. It's so, yeah. So, not wait, the role really? I wanted. So, you had yeah. you were <laughs> personal Sorry, training. Dad, what are you doing? Oh. You, had, you were personal training, and these guys would essentially, basically hint, we'd pay you a little extra if you would dominate me. Yeah, like. well, I mean, it was unfortunate because I worked at the Sports Club LA and in the same building, they had a strip club. So I got actually a couple of invitations to go to the strip club after. One pickup line was like, you know, um, free food. Free food? What is an that incentive. how you get chicks? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's so good because food is so scarce in New York City. Yeah. Thank you for making that kind offer. So yeah. did you have much, I mean, your dad obviously had, was just a, a wealth of wisdom about our people, but mm-hmm. did you yourself, you dropped down in America, you know, between New York and LA, two places with no shortage of Jews. Like, what did you think of Jews? Did you come with a set of stereotypes or like what? Did you come with an, an ancestral guilt? What What was going on? Yeah. I mean, I came with a lot of ancestral guilt and, um, to be honest, I was completely naive. I figured, you know, just like my dad said, all the Jews were in Hollywood. And um, there was actually this... Um, you know, some know, of I, us at any given point have to be in the banks. So we have to divide. We can never let one or the other and be running the world. Oh, by us. It's the way it works. Don't tell oh, all okay. our secrets. <laughs> <laughs> it's not all our secrets. It's I want to learn. <laughs> but yeah, sure, there was this acting... Um, teacher couple that basically adopted me. And it took me the longest time to realize that they were basically super Jewish. I mean, he kept singing things from Fiddler on the Roof, and it just never dawned on me because they were so nice to me. And I figured... Also because Gentiles do that. That's right. I mean, it's like... At some point, she dropped a you know a comment about bagels, and at that time, I kind of had realized that bagels and Jewish people you're kind like, of wait a go together. Minute. It was like the sixth trip to Zabar's in one week, and you're like, wait, <laughs> these people. <laughs> Were you ever walking down the street and you walked past some Hasidic Jews speaking Yiddish, and you're like, holy cow, I could actually stop and talk to them Absolutely, with my German? Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, I, I love Yiddish. I love the sound of it. And I mean, there's so many words that we have like you know mensch verklemmt, but they mean mm-hmm. completely different things which is confusing but um yeah i mean the sound of it i definitely like so you came over with a lot of guilt but did anyone ever like make you feel that way was it all sort of internal like did anyone ever actually like shame you for being a german no except maybe once i mean i i never told anybody about feeling terrible about this and i just carried it around with me silently and what then by the way that's I, like I the most mean... jewish thing i've ever heard exactly right. i think there's some <laughs> revelations like fear you're walking around with like yeah are they gonna find out what i am well are the thing know? was also you can't identify them because they you know i was just like they look just like any other white people so how am i supposed to know who is and who isn't when does this begin We're very when is the first time that way <laughs> right when is the first time that that you have a thought in which you realized 
holy, I feel really horrible for this. How old are you? What is the first kind of moment in which you're like, oh my God? You know, um, this is fascinating. Yeah, this is the weirdest thing because um, I can't really remember a time that I didn't know about the Holocaust, but I know exactly the time when it hit me so hard that I just felt horrible for the rest of my life and still do. Um, I went to Catholic school, so we had Sister Corda as our history teacher. And she was a very stern nun, not like a nice nun at all. And when it came to teach the Holocaust, um, that was the only time I saw her really kind of emotional and just like, I don't know, very upset. And she told us about these medical experiments that they did on Jewish people in the concentration camps. And there was one um, one example that she mentioned that they had filled a woman's uterus with cement. And I mean, I oh. was at an age that... How where, old were you? That's the thing. I mean, my uterus was still a super nebulous area to me. And I mean, it just... I mean, I still remember after class, I was just walking down the stairs very slowly and I just couldn't fathom why people would do that to anybody in the world and yeah it was just such a guttural way she got it into us and I mean I had watched several documentaries on the holocaust and second world war by then but um you know, the amazing thing that. is I, I think like and I'm I don't know why but I'm just now realizing this but I think Germans and Israelis are taught about the Holocaust at exactly the same way in exactly the same way and I think we're the only two people who are taught about the Holocaust this way because when I was around the same age I had the exact same oh, lesson no. like, and now let me tell you about some medical atrocities like I'm I'm eight <laughs> I don't need to hear any of this shit <laughs> yeah, why are you showing me these horrible images I can't process them I learned oh, about wow. the medical atrocities by reading the the old Ira Levin horror thriller, The Boys from Brazil, which is about cloning. Uh, it's it's a it, Mengele has basically escaped to Argentina, and he's cloning Hitler. Yeah, it was made into oh, a and, movie, and it was made into a movie, and it was um that's the that's the way you learned about. I mean, the Holocaust was about. I don't know if Stephanie would agree with me. I think for us it was like about mass numbers, but not a lot of personality to it. it was like yeah, 6 it was million. like for us we would like in health. I mean, I obviously knew about it on my own but like I remember in like my first institutionalized learning of it was like in a health class it was like one unit and then health class yeah it was really it was like where they taught it was like yeah, a catch all for all project. like for like sex ed like you know things it's like literally all the things that just like had no other place and oh, I remember no. one day we watched one night we watched a here's movie here's what not to do to your uterus yeah basically and it, but it was like it was you saw the marching and then you saw the mass graves you just saw the masses of people and so it was very much like the, it's like what Mark was saying like the scale I don't think we ever had like a, this is what, who no, Mangala was. Like, for us, we didn't was, have that. It was, mm. it was like weirdly, it was weirdly personal and, and, you know, embodied. Which is why, of course, it, it literally did become porn. That, that was not a, a, a sort of flippant comment. I mean, there's a whole range of pop novels in Israel in the 50s or 60s that were completely based on this yeah. premise that are still very popular. With young boys, because, you know, it's just a strange, overwhelming thing. And, and you go to the place where you feel most comfortable, which for young boys is obvious. It's like wow. their bedroom. Um, yeah. But yeah, my, I mean, I have an Israeli friend and um, she told me, yeah, we have Holocaust Day in Israel. And I was like, well, in Germany, every day is Holocaust <laughs> Day. Because, I mean, literally the street that I grew up in, this artist put um, what he calls Stolpersteine, mm -hmm. like um, tripping stones into the sidewalk and it basically describes um which family members were pulled out of that house and deported to concentration camps and there are three of those stones in my street so 
even just walking around every day, you, there's a constant reminder like of the atrocities that happened. And this is why so many Israelis end up moving to Berlin. They just feel right at home. It's the <laughs> same kind of vibe. Here, we're here. I have a question for you, Tessa. Yeah. There is an unsourceable quotation. It's attributed to various people, but nobody knows who said it, um, that Germany will never forgive the Jews for the Holocaust. In other words, that Jews are this constant reminder to Germans of how barbaric Germans can be. And therefore, there will always be a little bit of antipathy toward us for living as that reminder. Huh. Is that... Is that true? You know, I've never heard that quotation, but um, thinking about through the generations, because when I think of my parents who were, as they call now, the you know, children of war, I just read this article in The New Yorker that a lot of people that age that were like two, three, four years old, you know, when the war was going on, are now going through therapy and wondering if it's appropriate, you know, for them to even acknowledge their trauma because they were bombed, et cetera. So I, I remember my parents, um, whenever I tried to broach the topic with them, I could feel a kind of resentment. Like one day I was in Washington and um, I was visiting the Holocaust Museum there and, you know, I was calling my mom in Germany and um, I said, oh, I'm here going to the Holocaust Museum. And I just heard her sigh at the other end of the line and saying like, <sighs> another Holocaust museum. <laughs> and, That's exactly how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, and I, I feel like then my generation kind of bundled it all up and felt all the guilt and horribleness about it. And I have a feeling now with the generation after me, it's kind of turning a bit more about enough already. It's like, this is so long ago and what do I have to do with it? And um, I'm sure now with the refugee crisis and all of that, it's... I don't know. It's not going into a direction that I like. So you turned it into a play. Yeah. I mean, it was a very reluctant way um, that I came about this play. I mean, I basically did this um, solo show workshop with Matt Hoverman. And, um, you know, you just start writing about stuff. And I was like, hey, look at all my funny, <laughs> awkward sex stories. And he was just like, you know, but this other topic keeps coming back. And it's you bumping into Hasidic Jewish people and you know, and all of this stuff and your discomfort around this whole topic. I want I want you to write about that. And I was like, oh, I don't know. And, you know, it's then I, I just tend to do the things I'm really afraid of, like skydiving because I'm afraid of heights and stuff. So I figured I might approach it the same way. And um, yeah, and I mean, there were so, so many stories, like fully unaware. It was, this was actually after group therapy. I was in in a therapy group once, um, obviously coming from Germany and dropping medical school to become an actress. I had issues. So uh, another. And do Germans do therapy the way Jews do therapy? No, I found a really nice Jewish therapist here in New York, of course. And and you talk <laughs> exclusively about the events of 1939 <laughs> to 1940. <laughs> no, no, I did not. It's a Dr. Cohen. <laughs> In the spring of 41 in Vonta. Yeah, sorry. So you came, you came to New York and basically like took on this whole country's feelings and guilt. I mean, it seems unusual for someone who's young and coming, like, you know, wanting to be an act. Like you could have done anything, right? Like, but right. you sort of like, I, it's, it's kind of amazing. I mean, it seems very painful, though. Well, I was kind of a sponge for it. And then also, you know, people do remind you. I, I was um, waiting tables in this place, uh, Fiorello's, and um, they brought in a new chef from Italy and, you know, we introduced ourselves back in the kitchen. And I was like, hi, I'm Tessa. I'm from Germany. And without missing a beat, he just turned around to his staff and was like, ah, Germany, keep her away from the ovens. 
I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, that's Jake, you know, you know, Italy, you <laughs> guys were far behind. So let's that's right, exactly. Like, Hello, Mussolini. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come I on. So like, it actually is so, hard to be a German in America, is what you're saying. Well, you you actually you do get Hitler salutes. I mean, it's like you know, usually oh people God. are very drunk, but I don't blame people because most of the things that people see here are. You know, whenever they see a German in a movie, it's like just flip through your Rolodex, any association with Germany and some barking general or something. And up goes the arm. And it's always very awkward because obviously I don't want to salute back. I mean, what do you do? I, I, I can tell they kind of, <laughs> they kind of want to bomb. Hi. I know. That's usually what I do. It's, it's just the hand up slightly. Like, be like, hey. yeah, yeah. Hi, you too. Hi, you too. I get, I get it, it. I get yeah. it. Yeah. Just say but Shalom. you did have a film role playing a Nazi. Is that yes, correct? Yes, I did, which was very hard. But then eventually, because, you know, it was like freaking Robert De Niro directing. So I didn't want to do a bad job. And this oh, was The Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd, yeah. And uh, don't blink. I mean, it's all cut out. But, yeah, I remember coming on set and that this was supposed to be at a kind of Nazi party that, hap- you know, took place in Germany and, I mean, in, in America. And Michael Gambon... Uh, was playing one of the main roles and they had this big poster of Hitler, Hitler's face on a stand. And I mean, each time you just look at this man's face, it's just your stomach kind of cramps up. But I just thought, well, these people back then were very proud. So I just tried to be very happy and proud looking the entire shoot. And um, yeah, and just thought about other things besides, you know, the Nazi party. And was it like a casting <laughs> call for Germans? Nazi party. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Was it a casting call for Germans? Like, what was it? Or did you just find yourself there? You know, um, I had met this casting director that I had auditioned for him. And he called me one day and said, we need a reader that can distinguish actors that actually do speak German or are just trying to fake it. Could you come in and be the reader for this film? And I didn't even know what it was. And usually as a reader um, in an audition situation, you're behind the camera but uh, he was very insistent, uh, you know, on putting me in front of the camera with the other actor. And then, um, again, I didn't know which movie, which director. And then he just said, oh, um, Mr. De Niro wants you back for the callbacks. And I didn't even check it then. I'm obviously very oblivious. Um, yeah. And then when I came for the callbacks, it was the Mr. Robert De Niro. And wow. um, he was so sweet to then just write a role into the thing for me that wasn't even there. So I'm very well, grateful for that. <laughs> Tessa, we're going to write a role into future episodes of Unorthodox for you because Complete. this uh, has been amazing. But before we go, be I show's know German announcer. You, I you're did. Talking, I, well, then I can our, tell you all the stories about working clandestinely in a kosher restaurant and getting scared by a yarmulke. And yeah. Oh, sure. so please like do. You've traumatized. Uh, like, wait, you so keep wait, giving wait, us wait. a run for yeah, our I money. Feel, I, think. No, we, I like want to apologize to you. I'm sorry. I'm really we've sorry. We've done you more harm. Listen, no, no like, you're, we're like, you're, you're fine. Here's the thing. Memo to memo to Shira, our producer, right now to book Tessa to come back because I can't <laughs> not hear the stories of working in the kosher restaurant <laughs> oh, and no. other ways that you've been abused. But before you go, so as to entice you back, I want to let you know that if you come back, we're going to perform the ceremony of absolution for you so that you personally will be forgiven. We hate your great grandparents, but you personally will just not have to feel guilty anymore. Yeah, like I want, yeah, I, I don't want you to feel guilty anymore. We don't do it for is everyone. That, you guys are and I want everyone nice. to feel guilty, but not you. 
You guys are so nice. And we'll never do it for a Polish person. Just saying. <laughs> but for you, Tessa, come back. All right, we're going to book you again. Tessa, Kymus, Kim, thank you so much for being our dentologist. Thank elite. you. <laughs> Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I'll be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. We got a lot of awesome mail last week, but two letters stood out. The first is from Willie Wright. He writes, hello, unorthodox crew. I want to thank you all for putting on a fantastic episode week after week. I was especially fond of the story about A.E. Pai, the Jewish fraternity, and the Asian gentleman. Like him, I also joined a Jewish fraternity as a goy. The big difference being that I converted to Judaism from the experience. I fell in love with Judaism thanks to ZBT. That's... Zeta Beta Tau, and have since become very active in the Jewish community. I'm even on a committee with my local synagogue. Keep up the good work with the podcast. Respectfully yours, Willie the Black Jew. Welcome, Willie. Willie. Willie the Black Jew. Can't tell you how happy we are to have you, man. This buds for you, our brother, Unser Bruder. So, yeah, awesome. Chug, awesome. Chug, <laughs> chug, 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 chug. <laughs> and best of all was this one from Madeline Fox. Dear Mark, Stephanie, and Liel, shalom from a Jewish wannabe, as I've been called at the beginning of your podcast. My name is Maddie, and I'm a college senior studying journalism. I've been listening to your podcast almost since its beginning after my friend, who's actually a member of the tribe, introduced me to it, a fact of which he remains obnoxiously proud. This same friend and I recently had a disagreement that I wanted to bring to you, my panel of Jewish experts. He called whiskey the most goyish liquor. 
I disagreed, noting the history of Jews in the Kentucky bourbon industry. See, for example, I.W. Harper, the recently resurrected bourbon created by German-Jewish immigrant Isaac Wolf Bernheim. To which my friend responded, haven't you ever heard of don't get high off your own supply? I figured that you, a group of Jewish experts whom I've gathered also have a healthy appreciation for alcohol, would be able to tell me whether whiskey is, in fact, the most goyish liquor, and if not, what is. Right. I'll just start by throwing in my two cents, which is uh, my two shackles, which is at at every kiddish luncheon I've ever been to, you know, there's the little cups of little plastic cups of wine. And then somebody has a bottle of whiskey that you can do a little. L'chaim. I mean, it's never gin. It's never it's not it's not the other thing you do shots with. Right. That's it's right. not vodka. It's it's not tequila. I mean, could you even imagine the tequila shots at kiddish? It's whiskey. And, and so I, I don't know. That's a claim for it being a Jewish liquor. That plus Kentucky, uh, I agree a hundred percent. Maddie, uh, the the panel is with you. But that that raises the question: What would be the most goyish liquor? See, I, I kind of I'm thinking pogroms. I'm thinking vodka. But then again, you know, a lot a lot of people, my, my father included, are quite fond of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, tequila mm-hmm. is, you know, yeah. I mean, a, Jews a drank a lot of vodka. Goyish, uh, right. Tequila is super goyish, unless you're a brother. Can of we CBT. agree on rum? You really have rum I was going to say, like, rum. Mike's Hard Lemonade, but then I feel like there's, like, a lot of, like, <laughs> yeah. also, Jewish high school guys, guys say, like, yeah. chugging that in I, their yeah, parents' yeah. basement. I really like Mike's Hard Lemonade, I, I gotta it's, say. It's delicious. It gives you a little headache because of, <laughs> of the sugar. Also, like, a Smirnoff ice. Really cut my teeth on that stuff. I think rum. They're not Jewish pirates, you know. Really... Rum, I think rum, you're right. Okay, so we can agree for Maddie that rum, because there are no Jewish pirates. Are. And, yeah, and, it, and it's not in Europe. In that way, right? It's a kind of it's it's not like vodka where like Jews were drinking it in in the shtetl. It's not like gin where we at least can you know Jews aspiring to wasp and drink it. It's exactly. not like it's it's rum. It's rum. It's it's yeah. Okay, there you go. As ever, if you have mail for us or questions for the panel of Jewish experts, write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Mazel tovs of the week. I'll Stephanie? go first. My mazel tov goes out to uh, Bruce Frederick Joseph. Springsteen, uh, mm-hmm. whose book I just started reading. You know, I thought there was one thing in the world that I could do better than Bruce Springsteen. Nope. Uh, nope. There is not. Nope. A nope. He's a better writer than you too. In the world that I could do better than Bruce Springsteen. And now he's going to start coming out with like a book a year, like so, you, br- brother. You know, if you if you want a column in a, a very successful Jewish magazine, doors always open. There you go. <laughs> so my shout out is to my grandparents who are currently weathering out uh, the storm down in Boca Raton. We actually, got, my grandpa is amazing. I've, I've talked about him before. I actually like want to start getting, like calling him up on the show just because he just is yeah. smart and amazing and has a really good voice. So he sent us this email uh, the other day in caps and I wanted to share it just to me and my cousins. And my share it aunt in and caps uncle. though. Yeah, I know. It's hard to, it's hard to Yell it ca- capture that. Mark, that was easy. That was, that was for you. <laughs> Nation. Okay. He starts emails Nation, like like Stephen Colbert, which is, you know. Nation. Nation. Thanks to my U.S. Navy experience, we know how to batten down the hatches and are proceeding to do that for the next 48 hours. Our chances of survival are slim, but our spirits are unflagging. We loved you all and wish you the best. Cecile and Lieutenant Rothhouse. And I was like, you can't. You're writing this. We loved you all. Like, what, what's going oh, amazing, on here? Amazing. What is amazing. He ta- wait, can I just ask, what is he talking about? The hurricane, because the hurricane was There's hitting Florida. A state of emergency. So he, this was his email that he was sending to prepare for the I storm. See. To prepare. Do you, so watch, the do you watch the news? I don't think he does. I, I, don't think I keep watching it. 
Uh, my Mazel Tov is to Jeffrey Levick and Darren David, who had their their friends from Shul, and they had their second child this week, little, uh, little Raphael. And Ooh, um, good name. We're excited to bring them a, a warm meal sometime soon. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. It is edited this week by Shoshi Shmulevitz and produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Telushkin. Rabbinic supervision this week by our Jewish sister, Anita Raja. Also by Noah Stoffman and David Plotz, who sent us a super nice email. Also by Sid Luckman, uh, wherever you are. As many listeners pointed out, you were the Sandy Koufax of the NFL. I never should have said there was no Sandy Koufax of the NFL. Sid Luckman, rabbinic supervisor. Kosher slaughtering is by that Mexican thing that Mike Pence whipped out. Our website site is tabletmag.com. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at tabletmag. Our music is by Golem, and we record at the Supersonic Argo Studios in New York City. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.